Grosso from Vancouver to win it for Canada! Canada came! Canada conquered! Canada gold! Buchanan with the cross in towards Alfonso Davies! Canada's history-making moment delivered by their biggest superstar! A goal the country has been dreaming about for decades! Finally arrives! You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo. Alexander Gongay-Rujic and your host, Ben Steiner. Welcome back to the Northern Football Podcast, episode 146 of Northern Football. Ben Steiner alongside Peter Galindo and Alex Gongay-Rujic. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media as well. Quite a big week, quite a big, I guess, one day in Canadian soccer, pretty yeah. much. A Saturday, you couldn't really keep track of everything at once. Forge beat Calvary. 2-1 in the CPL final. The three of us were there. Alex, you had some interesting uh, travel experiences getting to Hamilton for all of, what, 18 hours? Uh, but certainly nice to, to all be together watching the CPL final and what was a great game. It was, yeah. It was uh, a great day. We, we did our best to follow everything, but it proved just a little bit uh, indecisive for us. I, I honestly thought going into that final that the Whitecaps game was starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. That's what Google said. Eight. That's what Google said. And then as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, well, this is just not convenient at all. All right. And we did our best to follow everything that was happening, but it was just too wild for us to follow. But it was a good day nonetheless down in in Hamilton. I'm sure we're going to talk about all of it. Uh, and it was good that the three of us got to sit together and take it all in. And uh the only unenjoyable part being the two-hour go bus ride back to Toronto. Yeah, because of traffic. All of a sudden, they decided to shut down two lanes on the QEW. And I'm thinking to myself, why? But it also made me feel better about my decision not to rent a car and drive down there. Because either way, we would have been stuck in that traffic. So I guess it kind of worked out. We saved money and wouldn't have been stuck in a car. And I got to watch the Canucks game on the way back. So that's also a bonus. Go Nux. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was it was a good weekend. It was a, a good weekend CPL final, best one yet. I mean, just so much to talk about from the the quality of the match, even right. Like um, as we said, the first ninety minutes wasn't exactly. Uh, it was. It, it, I mean, it certainly it wasn't from the neutral perspective. Not really excitement. It was low xg, low chances, but it was man. It was a defensive masterclass, and we can break it down, of course. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, just the goals. I mean, wow. <laughs> wow. Two bangers and Olympico. Like, what else could you want? So, yeah, that was, that was great. I mean, guys in the future, if you can, let's try not to have hand WNT, a CPL final, uh, MLS all jam-packed. But it's October. It's like there's a reason why there's a sports ex- equinox tonight as of recording. There's a reason why everything's going on. It's the best time of year for sports. But, uh Man, it, it, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's both enjoyable and at the same time, it was uh, quite impressive, all the moving parts that we had going on around us on Saturday, but wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, according to Sports Illustrated, soccer doesn't play a part in the sports equinox. They tweeted out that it's the sports equinox today and they had football, basketball, hockey and baseball, but no soccer. Um, even okay. Though... All right. Okay. <clears throat> uh, anyways, getting into the CPL final, of course, Forge champions for a fourth time. Forge, I guess you could say. Uh, 2-1 over Calvary in the final. Absolute bangers from Betty Benibanga and Tristan Borges in extra time. Ali Musi opened the scoring in the 107th minute with an absolute peach of a goal himself. Forge wins their fourth title in five years, the first home side to win a CPL final, and the first CPL finals to have both teams score and to reach extra time. The first 90 minutes, 
you can forget those. Uh, they were not worth being there for. But the the extra time was just magnificent chances end to end. Uh, both teams not necessarily being as reserved as they were through the night. Yeah, I think big picture, if we want to look at that first and then maybe go more into the minutia of the game. I am so happy that the league got a final like that in the end in that mm. it had all the drama. It lived up to the mantra of bangers only. And even though the first 90 minutes, as Alex mentioned, wasn't a masterpiece. Now, unless you're a sicko like us, where we look at how teams are setting up in their 5-3-2 mid-block and guys are interchanging with each other and you kind of get enjoyment out of that, uh, you probably wouldn't have enjoyed the 90 minutes. There were moments in the second half where things picked up and there were some opportunities. But generally speaking, the final kind of really started to pick up as the game went along and then peaked in extra time. And... I'm glad it happened because that's exactly what the final deserved. Two of the best teams in the league since its existence. Um, they both were kind of negating each other in ways, kind of forcing them to do things that they probably wouldn't otherwise do against other teams. And that's what made the final so intriguing. And to top it off, just under 14,000 people were there in attendance to provide an amazing atmosphere. Second year in a row, you get a really impressive number for the CPL final. Just under 15 were in Ottawa last year. You got just under 14 in Hamilton this year. And it's a sign that the league is starting to grow as well. And it's it's slowly getting better. Yeah, there are some warts that they still need to figure out, which I'm sure they will. No new league is perfect, of course. But generally speaking, it was a wonderful day for the CPL and for Canadian football. It's kind of what we dreamed of seeing before the CPL was even formed. So that's awesome to see just big picture, all of that play out the way it did. Well, look, even the first 90 minutes, although while, again, it might not have been for the neutral, I thought it was, again, like, I think both teams really showed their level. Like, I think if you look at that, like, that tactical battle is, uh, again, that feels like some high-level soccer. Like, it was just, like, the way Forge was set up in that 5-3-2, the way they, like, covered the width of the field so well. Because, as we know, Tim Horton's field's incredibly wide. We've seen it, you know, heck, remember Forge Cavalry leg one 2019 where Chris Nanko used every inch of the field yes. to keep a ball in and eventually led to the Tristan Borges goal. Like the width of the field is so important. And they did such a good job of keeping it wide for taking away space for Ali Moosey Fraser aired on that right-hand side uh, and on that left-hand side, the, the speedy William McKeo, but then on Cavalry side, just the way they played on the front foot all game long yet in transition, they were remarkably clean. Like I think heading into extra time, Forge had 10 shots, two on target, and their total XG was like 0.22. Like they were getting nothing in transition. It was incredible. And I think it was just fascinating to see the defensive level of both teams because, look, that's important. That's, it it might not again, it's maybe a bit more for the nerds, but I think I I thought that was worth appreciating. And to be fair, it was pretty fun to watch it with you two guys, especially because we have the vantage where we can kind of see everything. It's not like that's on an TV. amazing tactical view. Like to those who don't know, the Tim Hortons field press box is the perfect tactical view to watch a football match, and we were getting so much enjoyment out of that. Well, because we're on the seventh floor, so you can see everything. It's exactly. great. You can see all yeah. the off-ball runs. You can see all the like little movements, players stepping up to mark another. Like it was fascinating, and then. Yeah, I thought that was good. Like, because that's again shows the level of the the two top two teams, like you mentioned. And then, man, I mean, I think as well the the ending. I, I think it's huge just because those are moments where you have to kind of understand how unprecedented it is. I mean, there's the stat out there that uh, you know, Christian Jack found that like 
you know, the fact that a team won a game after trailing an extra time is pretty much unprecedented in most finals, yeah. major finals globally. Uh, and then, of course, you look at the quality of goals, like the fact that the talent on display for Ali Moussi, you know, hundredth minute of the game, legs tired, like literally he gets subbed off minutes later because he had nothing left to give, still picks one out top corner, first touch. Betty Batabanga, 105th, 107th minute of the game, it was two minutes in the stoppage time in the first half extra time just picks one out the top corner and then Tristan Borges as well and again before I hear any of the oh the goalkeeping the goalkeeping Tristan Borges has done that before he's picked out that corner from that exact same spot yes, yeah. on an Olympico he had the awareness to look and see that Cavalry had forgot to put a guy in the back post maybe they were cheating and trying to mark you know 1v1 in the box he sees them cheat picks it out like just the skill the talent I think that was great just uh, and it was great to see that the all, you know, the, that Borges goal went viral after because from a neutral perspective, it's little things. But an Olympico in a final, I don't know about you. I was the next day, I was like shook just thinking about it. Like we saw an Olympico 111th minute final winner. That's a unicorn in, in, in soccer. And the fact that people around the world started to pick up on it, that's good for the league to be like, look, this fun league, people score fun goals. And, uh, you know, for all you know, a final might be decided on a goal like that. Bangers only. Peter and I were talking about it on the bus ride back that. When you look at the three goals and you mentioned, you know, you could talk about goalkeeping on the Olympico, but I would almost rather and talk I, about goalkeeping on the first goal, the first goal because yeah. Carducci wasn't necessarily lined up to defend that that potential shot to the back post. And Betty Banga saw that yeah. and was able to, to loop, loop Carducci. It had to be a good shot. It had to be a, a miraculous oh, goal. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I thought Carducci probably could be set up a lot a lot better there yeah well and and here's the thing right you take nothing away from the actual strikes because even the Borges Olympico when you look at the flight of the ball and the trajectory it took to get into that far top corner that takes a special strike to execute that now as a goalkeeper I am going to have issues with a lot of things that happen to both of those goals more so the first one than the second one because when you look at the first goal if you watch it back, Marco Carducci cheats forward off his line as Benny Banibanga receives the ball and kind of starts to line up to shoot. In that situation, when you're preparing for a cross, usually if you're a tall goalkeeper, you can cheat a little bit more on this. And Carducci's about, what, 6'1", somewhere around there. So he can kind of afford to do this. You'd rather be in front of the ball going forward to reach across, then pedaling backwards and trying to get underneath the ball and then try to set up that way. And by cheating forward, you give Badibanga that window to shoot it into the top corner or try to curve it over you into the top corner, as opposed to if you're on your line, you can kind of line it up, you can just move to, to your side a little bit, jump up, catch it, or even at worst, just parry it over the bar if you're uncertain of where you are and you just want to get it out. That's where he is culpable there. The second one, I more so blame the setup of the fact that Calvary didn't have a man at the back post or at any post. And part of that is because Forge, they were smart with this. They loaded the six-yard box. They knew that Marco Carducci was weak at his back post. Bobby Smirniotis mentioned it after the game. And they took advantage of it. And then Charlie Trafford, probably because it already happened once and he knew that Marco at his back post isn't the strongest, tried to get something on it, he ends up kind of clipping Marco and they both end up not being able to get to the ball. So it was kind of just a combination of everything that worked out. The amazing execution from Tristan Borges, 
Trafford maybe not fully trusting his goalkeeper and just trying to get something on it. Marco's weakness at his back post. And then Cavalry not putting a man at the back post to begin with. All of that was just a perfect storm for Forge. And you also have to credit them too for having the mental strength to go a goal down in extra time in a final at home to an absolute worldie of a goal to then pull it out of their hat in the end. That's that's the mental strength of what a dynasty is and what champions are. And it's cliche, but it's true. And they showed that. So you also have to credit them for being able to come back from that, but you can still have issues with how Cavalry were set up in those situations and specifically maybe what Marco Carducci could have done better, at least on Badibanga's goal. And I think one thing that I've, I've noticed more recently watching the goal back after the final is Calvary in their defensive marking on that first goal only had Shemit Shom marking Kyle Becker on the right. kick. They but they had, they had nobody on Buddy Banga or were unprepared for a potential shot coming yeah, from there. Yeah, and Tommy mentioned that after the game too. And then you, you yeah. can also look at Shom gets to there to make a potential block if that shot's going near post. But... Mm-hmm. And he makes sure that he's there to push that shot to the far post. Mm -hmm. And that could have been recognized by Carducci that that block could be there for the potential shot. And then he could be at at the far post, potentially being able to make that save. But that doesn't take, I mean, it happens in a split second. It does. It does. It's much easier sitting here, you know, three days after the fact and watching it on on a replay to to realize that thing than necessarily in the moment and, you know, the, the 107th minute of the final. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger issue for Cavalry on the goal as much as, again, I think, yeah, you, of course you can highlight the individual errors just on the marking on the uh, from Carducci. It just also feels like, um, how, how would I say, sorry, it, it just feels like they were unprepared, like they were just overwhelmed by the goal I think they scored. Like it, it feels like it was one of those where they took the lead through Ali Musi and they were just a bit like, yeah, they were just overwhelmed by the moment. I think what was telling as well, we were kind of talking about it at the time, Calvary was making no subs. Like, Shamit Shom yeah. came in in the 73rd minute. That was the only sub they made through the first 107 minutes Which of the game. Nuts. Like, literally the only, like, they finally made their second sub after the Benny Badibanga goal came in, and then it was yeah. Callum Montgomery for Ali Musi. And that one was also a bit of a questionable one i guess i get why it happened it was probably planned like before moosey was starting to tire you bring him in mm-hmm. before the goal but i think at that point at 1-1 you look at some of the options on the bench and they all ended up coming on later like you, you wonder if he just should have gone like for like and ke- keep what's working even if it's 1-1 just because again especially bringing a defender in all this um that you know it, it's not to say that someone like Callum montgomery came in and change the game but you know you wonder if a, a sub like that also affects the set pieces sequences maybe that's perhaps why, why there was yeah. a mix-up and someone forgot to go to the back post because maybe that was moosey's job or something like that uh, or you know maybe that was just something where the subs kind of threw them all off so yeah it just felt like cavalry um yeah they, they just kind of got o- over eager by that moment where they score and maybe you think you're gonna win all of a sudden those tired legs really catch up to you again it's uh, it, it's something small, but we kind of saw this this summer when Canada played the U.S. in Gold Cup and Schaffelberg scored. And we mentioned they were just instantly flat after. It kind of reminded me of that. Like you get such a burst of emotion. You all run to the other side of the field. All those guys had 100 plus minutes under their belt. And all of a sudden you're probably jogging back to center. And you're like, oh, oh I feel the I feel my <laughs> legs now. Right. Or something like that. And next, thing you know, you're, turf. you're fighting for your life. So, yeah, I just thought it was interesting as well how Cavalry how cavalry just kind of seemed like 
uh, over eager after they scored and a bit tired. And then on Forge's side, how motivated they look. Cause I think they could have been easily very deflating that all game long, you keep Ali Musi relatively locked up and then you give him half an inch of space like that. He punishes you. That can be so demoralizing as a defender, especially at that point in a final, you have barely any time to respond and get a goal, let alone two. And I was just so impressed with how Forge, how resolute they were. They just took the ball, went right back to center, and then just they they went at it. They they tactically they added in some more attacking weapons, and they just completely put Cowler onto the back foot. So it was fascinating to see the difference in approaches. Because I think if I would have been curious to see what would have happened in the other scenario, because it feels like if Forge scored first, they would have just shut down shop, yeah. low event, see it over the line. Um, maybe Cavalry would have panicked, kind of like they did at the end, where Cavalry still had what it was about 10 minutes to chase an equalizer at the end. And they only had one shot. They only had one shot. It was that Dan Klomp um, header, I think it was, or a shot. Like, I feel like if the shoes would have been on the other, you know, if the, the, the roles were reversed, it would have been interesting to see the, the, the difference in approach. And I think that's where credit has to be given to forge. Yeah. And I also feel like speaking of subs that forge really flex their muscle in terms of the depth they have, just based on when you look at who they brought off the bench Right, Kwasi Poku comes off at halftime. Who comes in? Dom Samuel, experienced defender, right? They bring on Tristan Borges, who replaced, was it Noah Jensen, I believe, around minute 70 or so. Then David Schwanier comes in. Jordan Hamilton comes in during extra time when they were still trailing. Uh, and then they close it up with Maliko Walabi, Balewu coming in to kind of help shore things up, and Abubakar Sissoko to help lock down the midfield as well. Like, that's just incredible depth. And... Cavalry are getting there because you could even see with some of the options they had on their bench, like Shamit Shoma that they could bring on, and and he did a fantastic job coming off the bench. Um, you, you just see that Forge is still superior in that way. Some clubs are getting there, but they're still the class when it comes to the squad depth, and it showed that they had all those options to bring on. And getting into your questions from Arter Lachinsky, teams ascend to legendary status on the wings of miracles. Think of the United 99 treble with extra time goals, Aguero's heroics against QPR, etc. Is this Forge team now truly legendary? And as an Atletico Ottawa fan, how many months do I have to stay off CPL Twitter for it to be bearable? <laughs> Lucky for you, Twitter might go down the drain yeah, at well, any moment now. But if it doesn't, uh, it might be a while, yeah. Because look, Forge are getting all the plaudits, and rightfully so. I mean, it's absolutely incredible what they've been able to do with different iterations of the team. Like, it's not like they've kept the same exact spine for all five years. They brought in Alessandro Hojabrapur. They brought in Taron Campbell. You know, even some of the subs that they bring in off the bench, right? Like, David Schwanier was a regular starter the first couple of years. Now he's kind of like a rotational option. Same with Tristan Borges. Uh, Benny Badibanga, mid-season signing, who ends up bossing the final as well. Um, like, it, it really is truly remarkable what they've done in the five years. And when we had Bobby on the show, he spoke about it, right? You, you have to keep the standards. You got to keep raising them. You got to keep having that ambition. And he made an interesting reference to that after the game as well when talking about his own ambition and maybe entertaining offers from else, elsewhere if they come in. We'll see. But for sure that they've they've already reached a legendary status, if they hadn't already. Because five straight CPL finals, even if you take away the Island games, making it in the four proper quote-unquote seasons is pretty damn crazy. And to win four of them is just downright incredible like who else is kind of at that level the chicago bulls and new england patriots um like teams and even the patriots lost some super bowls themselves so i mean to have an 80 percent success rate in league finals is pretty damn crazy um and they deserve the plaudits that are coming their way because they have been 
you know, pretty damn good for the last five years, not just on the pitch, but also in terms of how they evolve as a club themselves. I think a big part of that as well is they've set the standard for the league because I know when Hajabapur and Campbell left Pacific, like they were leaving a, the championship winning club of that Correct. year, but it yeah. felt like, you know, they're taking a step up even though they're in the same league. Yeah. And Forge has, has set that pace with the off-field management, the on-field management, the way mm-hmm. that they, they play, the way they approach just every aspect of that club. And a lot of that, you know, comes down to they're within a CFL organization that cares a lot for the CFL team and consequently also cares for yeah. the CPL team. And I think yeah. that's where you can see the potential of Valor. Um, because if you somehow got that same setup and that same passion around Valor, you could easily set a, a similar standard. 100%. Um, no. But it's it's where clubs like, you know, Calvary, and they've done a good job of it, but they, they've kind of extended as, as far as they can go um, in terms of building that that off-pitch culture um, and building the sort of vibe around them that they are a big club, that they are premier. And that's a challenge that Pacific's going to face, Halifax is going to face. I still think Calgary yeah, have done a pretty really harsh good job. To they, 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 they've done a good job of it, but it just seems like Forge is a different level, and I'm not sure how you get there without well, necessarily having all yeah. of the bells and whistles that the Ticats have. Yeah, in that way I could see it in, in some aspects, but that's why I think you maybe even give more credit to Calgary because they have been able to True. still develop countless players, send them on to the next level. Some have made the national team, right? In just the five years they've been in existence. They've started youth teams as well, academies, etc. And they have been, in a lot of ways, on the pitch, the barometer to me. Like, they have the most points in regular season history, do they not? Right? It's yeah. not Ford, it's Cavalry. Now, this is maybe where you kind of tie the two together in that... I think they've also raised the bar tactically for the league as well in terms of the overall quality that the player needs. Because when we were looking at the league in 2019 and you see who kind of came in and who's come in since, they've almost set the standard in terms of what the quality of the league is, both Mm -hmm. tactically, on the pitch, off the pitch, uh, everything about it, right? And it's... It's starting to to show in other clubs like, for example, Pacific, because for the last few years, they've been very consistent. They have a clear identity. They have a specific culture that they adhere to, right? And other clubs are starting to follow suit as well. So Forge maybe set it. Cavalry also probably helped set it as well. It's just because Forge were winning titles, they probably get more of the credit first rather than the team who was maybe right there neck and neck, but don't necessarily have the trophy cabinet to show for it. I think for Forge, it's also, yeah, I, I just don't think it's the same comparing the two, Forge and Cavalry, because I think for Forge as well, what's been remarkable is, first of all, the big games. Like, I think it can't be understated because it's hard to win big games. And, like, mm-hmm. the fact that Forge has now won four finals, um, you know, this year they went down in a final and they still won. They've won finals on the road. They've now won the finals at home. They've also done it in CONCACAF. Like in year one, they were going toe-to-toe with Olympia. Like Olympia is a giant of CONCACAF. That's a team that's given MLS teams fits over the years. Yes. Um, Over the years, they eventually made it to the semifinals of CONCACAF League. They qualified to the Champions League at a time where there wasn't the guaranteed berth like there is now, right? right? Like they they paved the way and they went toe-to-toe with Cruz Azul as well. Like they never seemed daunted by the challenge and i think this year was remarkable because this was the toughest year of the league yet so competitive we saw it like mm-hmm. forge for large parts looked like they'd finish fourth third or fourth yeah. and, and they barely scraped in the second yet it was remarkable how 
against a cavalry team that was by far the best team in the regular season forge were just like all right forget our 28 games forget everything that went wrong whatever yeah. went right just wiped it clean and just were, were so dominant and i think that also goes to the the core and the culture they've set the fact that um bobby smear noticed like what he set from the top down and i think also the players because i was doing some research on this i was just writing something about tristan borges they also have six originals from year one i don't think any team comes close because i know cavalry they only have two it's camargo and carducci mm-hmm. um I, yeah pretty much it because like pacific all of their day oneers are gone ottawa mm-hmm. pretty much all their day oneers halifax just ran up um, a lot, you know, like there's not basically all that to say. There aren't many teams with that many day oneers um, still even around their clubs. And the fact that Forge, guys like Tristan Borges, this is a guy still contributing, scoring Olympicos in a final. Like um, Kyle Becker put in a heck of a shift in this final and had one of his best seasons yet. Dom Samuel, like you mentioned, he's come in and did a job to help win his fourth title. Uh, Tristan Henry, still the starting goalkeeper, did win a goalkeeper of the year. Alice, Alexander Achinodi Janssen. Like, it's not just that they have these core of day oneers, but all their day oneers, they aren't just like token veteran guys or, you know, they're, they're there and they're contributing and they're winning. I think that also goes a long way. And for uh, to, to Calvary's perspective, I think it's incredibly impressive that they've been so dominant in the regular season despite all of that turnover. Um, but yeah, I'm sure they would love to sit in there and still have a Joel Waterman hanging around, still have a Dominic Zator hanging around. Um, etc. But also like credit to Calvary to be able to move these guys on to that next level um, while still remaining competitive. But yeah, I think that's the big thing that Forge has that teams are going to push to keep is just that core, that winning mentality. So that in big games, now that like now it's going to be tough for teams to 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 match that because if you know Kyle Becker, like all the finals, all the big games he's played in, like there's there's no one in the league around that can match that. But that's also a credit for Forge to keeping him motivated, pushing him to that next level, and et cetera. And there's countless examples of that. And from Michael Atmic underscore Maz, does Saturday's win cement Bobby Smirniotis as the best coach in CPL history despite never winning a Coach of the Year award? I think you already had that going into it. I, I would say so, yeah, for sure. And and look, even though he doesn't have the coach of the year awards to back it up, like what he has to back it up is all the freaking trophies they've won and all the CONCACAF runs they've gone on as well. And just the standard they've set in the league, which I'm sure he cares more about than individual awards. Um, that's not to say that those who have won the coach of the year in the past and even this year don't get their plaudits or didn't deserve it, but it is still worth remembering that, look, they're not the club that they are. They're not having the success that they have without Bobby running things behind the scenes. No, 100%. I think the resume speaks for itself, right? And that's the thing with Coach of the the Year Award as well. It's like it's narrative, it's timing. Because you know, ultimately, I think you look across the five years, the only year where you could really say like he missed out was 2021. And there you could have a legitimate argument just because – Pamanuka won and it was a great story, but for whatever reason that year playoffs were included. And then the, the next year was like where the playoffs stopped being included in the criteria. So then like, that's, you know, cause if you included playoffs in the criteria, then he could have won this year. He could have won last year. He could have, you know, but whereas in 2019 year one, Tommy Wilden jr. Great story. He wins fine. And then 2020 it was a bubble year. The Wanderer story, Stephen Hart wins, you know, great, great story. 2021, that's the one where you can make the argument for Bobby. 
Uh, and then 22, Carlos Gonzalez, I thought that was pretty fair. And then this year, I mean, mm-hmm. Wilden Jr. winning is pretty fair as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, the trophies speak for itself. And as well, look, I think it's a credit to him because often coach of the year, it's usually like not to say this is what happened in most years, but let's be honest, coach of the year often is which coach takes the the most ragtag bunches far away further than anyone thought they should. Yeah. Like, you know, not saying that happens all the time, like calling cavalry this year ragtag would be an insult to them and tommy wilden jr but that's often what happens that's the narrative oh like which team overachieved the fact that forge ever since they won that title in year one the expectation has been do it again do it again then they lost in 2021 everyone's like oh they're off their perch they're washed like look you know watch watch out the fact they've since come back from that and won back-to-back titles in the most competitive seasons yet that for me is a different level of expectation and it might not be rewarded in coach of the year votes for different reasons. But yeah, the fact that they continue to respond to that pressure, I think that's why he made uh, like, because again, it's like he mentions, it's different to be a uh, like for forge. It's tough because if you win, it's expected. That's what he said ahead of the final. I thought that was a fascinating quote. He's like when forge wins, of course they did. But when Forge lose, it's a disaster, fire the coach, they're slipping off, they're off their perch, and that's a different type of pressure. And that's why I think uh, Smirniotis deserves credit because keeping your players motivated when you're winning that much and having that sort of pressure, like, that's skill. tough. Yep. And Calvary still can't get it done in the CPL final. What's next for their club? Look, they're, they're still set up pretty nicely here. Even with the mid-season sale of Goti and Tigney, they bring in Willie Akio, and he ends up slotting in there very seamlessly. They may go through one or two potential changes in the offseason. Like, I wonder if Dan Klom sticks around or not. That could be a big one. Because, um, I mean, he's just getting all sorts of plaudits from around the league, and I'm sure scouts are watching him very closely. Um, and he's the sort of age profile with the pedigree to maybe be able to make that step up. So you wonder if, if they lose him... How does he get replaced? Because he's a massive staple of that spine of that team, never mind their defense. I I think Tommy sticks around regardless. I I know there's going to be interest in him, I'm sure, but I think he sticks around for a little while longer. And they've proven year on year that even when they go through wholesale changes, they can still be very consistent and finish in the top two, three, four places in the league and make a run for the final. So I, I don't think anything will change in that regard, but there could be one or two intriguing, notable changes to come during the offseason. Yeah, look, I think Calvary will make changes, no doubt. It's going to be hard to keep Klomp. I mean, a defender winning MVP award in the league, winning defender of the year, just the dominant season he had. Teams are going to be interested I mean, you just look at in Canada, like if you're the Whitecaps, you're all year you're struggling with consistency in the middle of your back three. Dan Klomp can make sense. Toronto yep. FC. <laughs> ditto. <laughs> ditto. Even CF Montreal, I'm sure, like, you know, it's worth a look, given they've dealt with Cavalry nicely before and gotten a pretty yes, good uh, player in, in Joel Waterman. And that's not to say the American teams as well. So Dan Klomp will be tough to keep. I mean, we'll see who else moves on. What I feel interesting about this Cavalry team, personally, I think this was a year ahead of schedule. I th- of yes. course, they'll, dis- they'll disagree, you know, and they won the regular season in such dominant fashion. I still think they were a year ahead of schedule just because heading into this year, they made so many changes. Like, this was the first year without so many of their guys. Like, this is, you know, all these all these vets moved on. Like, Mason Trafford retired last year. Elijah Adekugbe left to go to York. Escalante pretty much left near the beginning of the season. 
like this was really a first year of their true rebuild because yes, they'd always been rebuilding on the fly, but they always still had those core pieces. Like you could look at Calvary and expect Carducci, Trafford, um, you know, a, a lot of those guys that were already there, st- Staples, Atacubi, um, et cetera, et cetera. And now I think a lot of these guys they signed, I look, I'm like, okay, Willie McKeel, he'll probably stick around next year. He's in his prime. Ali Musi, if they keep him, that's he, I mean, if yeah. he, he, he can hit a whole other level because his underlying numbers suggest that he could have had more goals and assists and feels like he only got better as the season went along. Um, you know, they're, they're, you look in the midfield as well. You look at the back. For example, Klomp leaves. Callum Montgomery barely played this year, and he was supposed to be a star at the back for, mm-hmm. for, for Cavalry, and he could easily step up and be that replacement. So I think this Cavalry team was a year ahead of schedule, and I think – What's important is that some, as people say, sometimes you need to to lose to win. So I think the fact that they'll be able to retain a lot of this core, they're going to be hungry next year. They're going to want to win the league again. They're going to want to do well in Concacaf. And when it comes down into it in the playoffs, I'm sure someone like Marco Carducci is going to be frustrated with how this final went. There's going to be a lot of players who are frustrated about how this final went. So I'd say I think Cavalry, um, as long as they you know keep most of those guys around, they'll be a force to be reckoned with next year. And from Accomplished Troll, how many participants, players, and staff from the final do you think will move up? And how many do you think deserve to move up? Ooh, that's a good question. Two or three, maybe. I, I think s- both coaches. And then maybe <sighs> one player, Wubens Basias, he was there. I saw him eating popcorn. Also true, yeah. He was hurt, apparently, quote-unquote. Um, though he seemed fine to me. I walked past him in the hallway and near the press box and seemed fine walking back and forth. So, I don't know. Take... Take from that what you will. Walking to and from um, the popcorn in the press box. Yes, and also really good popcorn at, at terrific popcorn. Like, like I was every time I'd go back. The only reason I went back for a coffee like two or three times and water and offered to get you guys water was just to take a little bit of popcorn every single time instead of bringing it back and looking like a fat ass. But anyway, um, in terms of the question, I think Basias goes. I think Kwasi Poku goes. I think Dan Klomp goes. Now, that doesn't count Pasillas as a finalist. I'm just saying that he'll end up going. So those three will leave. And then I'll I'll go bold and say that Bobby ends up getting tempted by the men's national team job. He gets offered it and takes it. Um, So that therefore it goes up to three participants in the final, four total. And I will cap it at that. Yeah, it's interesting. I'd probably agree with all of those. And then as for the coaches, I think they definitely fall in the category of deserve. Um, to move up. Other than that, yeah, it'll be interesting to see because it feels like a lot of these guys on both teams are core guys. I and mean, man, I if they if all the if all these guys keep their teams, like Forge Cavalry rematch next year in the final could uh you know maybe over in Cavalry could be uh, quite the the prospect. Because yeah, I mean other other than that, maybe yeah, uh, may, maybe um like a Noah Jensen could be looked at, maybe a Hojabapur. Yeah, I'd say maybe those two for Forge, um, maybe for Cavalry and Eric Cobbs. Although I think he gets at least another year and then yeah, makes a move like that. I agree. But who knows? Who knows? Maybe he may. Because also, what I wonder with some CPL, like with one, with some MLS teams, if they start to realize that this the adjustment can be a bit tougher for some of these younger guys. Maybe we start to see more buy now loan back to his original club for a year, and then you already have him in your mm-hmm. system kind of yeah. deal. I feel like someone like Cobbs, it can make a lot of sense for that. Like you could project a really big breakout next year. Yes. Why not get him now early for cheaper and then loan him mm-hmm. back and then go, but we'll see. That's, those are some of those guys I'd probably yeah. look at. 
And from Vince Alvarado at Vince by Demand, I recently realized that no CPL striker has ever hit 15 goals in a season. Why do you think that is? Diaz probably would have hit it had Pacific not let him go, but no one ever seems close to hitting 20. And we talked about this a bit off air before the podcast, but the defending in the CPL is on par, if not better than the attacking. Um, And that's where you see a difference in terms of the CPL versus a league like Major League Soccer, where you're pouring money into attacking players and not so much into defending players. And then I think you can also look at the fact that because you don't necessarily have that same money in the CPL, you have to build a team completely. And that has to, in a lot of ways, start with defense. Mm -hmm. So teams build the heart of their defense for the most part and then build out from there and maybe have one or two game breakers in an attacking midfielder and a striker that can score goals within a system. You can look at Meyer Bevan, for example. Yep. Um, but in the CPL, you need to solidify your defense or otherwise you're going nowhere. And you, we see that from the the top. Like you mentioned Eric Kobza and Dan Klomp. Well, Dan Klomp, they had to go out, go out and get. Eric Kobza, they saw something in, in U Sports and wanted to bring him in. He would have been very helpful in, in Calgary's 3-0 loss to UBC in the Canada West playoffs. But I think he would probably rather be playing in a final. Timely U Sports reference. Excellent. Well done. <laughs> um, shout out to the Mount Royal Cougars also making their way to the Canada West final. But I will shout out about U Sports for the rest of this show. Um, assuming nobody asked a question about it. Uh, and then you look at Forge and there's investment in Madrikar James uh, in the offseason. And mm-hmm. he, he comes in and solidifies that and they go on and win again. So you, you look at teams needing to solidify their defense and it seems like much more of a focus in CPL than it is in a league like MLS. Yeah, I mean, look at the defenders across the league. You have Amir Didich, who has decent pedigree. Thomas Mayer-Giguer, who has good pedigree at Pacific. Calgary has Dan Klomp. They have a solid draft pick in Eric Kobza. Um, then you go to Vancouver, Rocco Romeo is signed. Like, I mean, he was a solid CPLer for a long time. Even before that, he had decent pedigree. I believe he got U20 caps as well. Uh, like, you go through the entire list of all the teams in the league, and there are in terms of the resume, really good defenders in the league. And then you look tactically at how a lot of these teams play. Like, it was a very balanced league this year. We talked about it. And part of that is, look, you're playing each other a lot, so you're going to have the dossier on a lot of teams already, which helps. But defensively, tactically, a lot of these teams are very well drilled. So that's part of it. And you see that when, for example, someone like Osazi de Rosario has a breakout season last year, this year, kind of struggles to get the goals, right? Part of that's injuries. Part of that is York's overall inconsistency. I understand that. Um, and then the other side of it too is outside of maybe De Rosario and Pasillas, are there any number nines in the league where you look and you're like, yeah, they are head and shoulders, like game breakers above the rest. They can change games on their own. Probably not, right? Um, and that's also part of it too. But I do think that a lot of people kind of sleep on just the overall tactical defensive quality that the league does have and how difficult it can be for a lot of these forwards to come in. Like remember when Joe Mason signed for Calvary and everyone thought, oh, he's going to have an absolute field day in the CPL. He really didn't because the CPL is actually pretty decent defensively, which uh, does catch a lot of newcomers by surprise. Yeah, look, to the point, I am 100% aboard the idea of the defenders. Look, a defender won the MVP award this year. Like That says it all. You know, I was making my team of the season. I had three center backs picked from five of them. I could have made an argument for like five or six center backs. Usually when you're making an MLS team of the season, just to use a comparison, you see the whole like, there's the joke, right? It's the running gag that every 
person does the three, four, three, and like the three of the defenders, two of them are fullbacks who score a lot of goals. And then all four of your midfielders are like tens. And then your three strikers, like, Correct. like the fact that you're able to make a legitimate team of the season with wing backs and fullbacks and center backs and defensive midfielders like Lorenzo Caligari. Again, I think that speaks to the quality of the defending. So I'd say don't sleep on that. I think that makes it a lot harder to score. And yeah, I think another factor as well is just the familiarity because it's hard to like, there's no, like, how would I say? Like, there's no team that you're just like getting free goals against. Cause sometimes in other leagues, like, you know, that for, for whatever, like there's a reason where I'm sure a lot of us do premier league fantasy, there's a reason why you captain Holland when they're playing like a Sheffield United. If there are any Sheffield United fans out there, apologies and advance, but you get it, right? Like there's some teams where you just know there's, uh, you know, a team like City's going to just dominate, destroy, get chances. And then you have a good chance to get your, your fantasy captain some goals if it's Holland in this case. Whereas in the CPL, there's no matchup like that. Even a team like FC Edmonton last year, they were still incredibly competitive defensively. And I mean, it also helps with the parity. Because even in MLS, there are a few matchups like that. Like, yeah, you're going to mm-hmm. triple captain your Cucho Hernandez if he's playing Colorado or if he's playing TFC this year. But, oh, there's no triple captain, but you get my point. You're going to captain. Um, so, yeah, I think there was also just that parity as well where there was, it was extremely competitive, especially defensively, like where even the teams like Valor and Vancouver, they were still, you know, relatively solid uh, on the defensive side of things. And then the fact that they see each other so often, I find it fascinating about Pasillas because this is someone who scored so many goals in his first two seasons CPL. Bobby Smear noticed challenging this year to work on his hold-up play, work on other sides of his game, find ways to score in different ways because he almost felt like, Pasillas was going to get maybe get figured out. Pasillas, for the first half of the year, did struggle to score. So you maybe wonder if that assessment was correct. Pasillas gets through it, shows his talent, scores a bunch of goals at the end of the year to push for the golden boot. So, uh, yeah, there's a multitude of factors. Also 28 games. And with the CPL season now done, we look to the off season, which, of course, includes the U-Sports draft. Your favorite day of the year. Oh, it's, it's like Christmas to me. Uh, and always a hard to predict the CPL draft because there's so many personal connections that goes into it that you don't necessarily pick the best players. But if first pick, I would go Javier Sagaste from Victoria, an attacking midfielder with the UVic Vikes. Uh, He's been dynamic for the last few years and this year uh, scored six goals, six assists in in 12 games in a very testing Canada West Conference. Um, You have a bit of a, um, and I think that he's a player that could probably step in and and make an impact in the CPL um, more so than even a guy like, you know, Ivan Mejia, of course, more, more of a wide player who didn't really settle with Vancouver FC after coming over from the Rovers, but he struggled with the UFE Cascades and wasn't a player that was a standout necessarily in U Sports. Love the guy, but he he wouldn't have sort of cracked my U Sports draft ideals. I'll say, uh, let me let me throw a few names at you because uh, may as well. I guess one, just off the start, you, you, I like the Marzouk shout. Do you think this is finally the year that Chris Campoli sticks with someone? I mean, what, he had 12 goals this year for uh, uh, as a transfer to TMU. Could this be the year? Because he's been drafted, what, like twice? He's been drafted three times, twice by York United, once by HFX. At this point, I haven't been able to get a straight answer out of him. But at this point, I just don't think he wants to turn professional. Um, because if he had wanted to, then, you know, at least he would have done a summer season kind of thing. Like he would have gone for a few games here and there and... He hasn't uh, taken that opportunity. I also thought this was a bit of a down year for him. Sure, he finishes second in the country in scoring, but six penalties. And I thought that TMU was flat in a lot of their performances. Uh, They were good in transition. They used wide players well. 
Um, I would almost say a player like Juan Pablo Delgadillo is probably a guy worth more taking a look at in terms of guys who have yet to step on a CPL pitch uh, on TMU, as well as Colin Gander. Of course, he had a year with HFX after impressing with, with Guelph and then also transferred to TMU. But I think you look at the TMU roster in particular, and it was just massive underachievement this year. Um, it starts off with getting suspended for two games because of the hazing allegations. Um, and there's definitely something to that. Um, and then they just completely shit the bed, for lack of a better word, in the playoffs um, and weren't able to get to the national champion level that they should have been in. Like they had trouble beating RMC at points. They had trouble beating the Trent Excalibur team. Like they, they've no, struggled against they've, they've struggled against bad teams. And so, yeah, I, I, I think Ken Poli's time has possibly passed now save this when he's you know running the midfield of a cpl team next year but i think his time in terms of a cpl a top cpl prospect has passed okay and then a few more i mean we'll dive we'll have to dive in this more because I, mean, I think some listeners would appreciate it ahead of the draft How, what do you think of a tyler Atardo? because i think along the lines of a colin gander some a guy who's already been you know a former cpl or a tardo is a fascinating one because he went pro in France, now he's playing for York. Could that be also something where maybe York they get some depth up front with a guy like Tyler Atardo? I think Atardo could be cool. I mean, he was decent in the first year of the CPL in 2019. With no, so how old is he now? He's 20. He's, he's still 22. That's... So he he's still young and he's been doing really well with York as well. Um, scored both their goals in an extra time win over the Western Mustangs in the OUA quarterfinal. Um, beat Dino Bontis, a potential goalkeeping prospect actually um, in the CPL, uh, beat him twice late in the game. Um, I think Tyler Ricciardo could could fit well in the CPL and I think it's just a matter of time until he's back at that level. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised whether he you know, actually wants to get his social work degree at, at York and that's the reason he's come back to play in the OUA. Um, but the potential of, I think, playing for York United, it doesn't take that much more demand than a student athlete with with the York Lions uh, in terms of what their student athletes go through under national team assistant head co- assistant coach Carmen Asako. Um so yeah I think Atardo could be an, a name you could watch all right well last one for me I'll, I'll do it as a double is it just me or I'm seeing Luke Norman I think this year he had I think what was it uh, about five goals five assists yeah four goals five assists for UBC he's he's an 04 he's just 19 is that me? Is that a lot of like an Eric Lajeunesse type pick, like a guy who comes from the Whitecaps U19, goes straight into UBC, finds his role, and maybe that could be a useful pick for a team who needs U21 minutes? And secondly, any defenders? Because, I mean, there's a lot of attackers. or any defenders who could pull like a Guillaume Pianelli or, or, or something, one of those eSports, def- like a, someone like Milo Djurgic, who we thought he was going to do, uh, you know, maybe stick on with York, and he did it. Any defenders as well as, uh, of course, Norman? It seemed like a bit of a down year for defenders in a lot of ways. And a lot of the ones that, you know, have caught my eye in the past were first-year defenders last year. Um, Eric Kovza, Eric Lajeunesse. Of course, Lajeunesse back with UBC now. That back line is absolutely insane. They've got Chris Lee as well, uh, who scored, uh, apparently he said in the locker room before their quarterfinal match that he would score in Olympico, and he scored a free kick that was not too far from it. Um, but, yeah, Luke Norman's intriguing. Um I still think he might be a little bit young to necessarily throw him into the the CPL um, because we, we've seen players that get thrown in too early. Uh, but then again, you saw Lajeunesse get thrown in in this year and I guess more of a structured position at center back. But um, 
yeah, Luke Norman is, is worth a look maybe, but I don't necessarily see his spot where he fits. Because if you look at, say, Pacific, they have a history of selecting UBC players. Um, is he going to be fitting in within first and second choice midfielders at Pacific? Probably not, given who they have signed for next year. Um, and then you, you Vancouver kind of go, could make sense. You go down the list. Vancouver would make sense, but at that point, I would almost rather Javier Sagaste. Because I think a lot of Vancouver's issues might have come from how young they were. Um, and they're mm-hmm. still going to be a young team next year. You're probably still going to have, you know, TJ Tahid there next year. Of course, you're older, but you're still a very young team. That having a little bit more composure and still a fairly local tie-in going from the island uh, in Javier Sagaste, I think that would be a better pick. But, I mean, they, they could pick both. There's two rounds of the draft. That was for all the nerds out there. I rate it. Getting into our MLS playoff roundup, the Vancouver Whitecaps fell 5-2 to LAFC in Game 1 of their best of three series. Four goals conceded offset pieces. Brian White and Sam Atakubi scored for the Vancouver Whitecaps. Must win Game 2 on Sunday at BC Place. Peter has leg two in this. I would much rather it be leg two, um, but it is Game 2 of the best of three. Yes, uh, which is which so is weird to say so for, for the sport. Soccer. Throwback to the 1990s in MLS when things were crazy but awesome. But the Whitecaps could potentially defend two nil-nil draws and win two penalty shootouts and advance. Um, Which is hilarious. What else needs to change for the Whitecaps going into game two? Uh, stop conceding four goals off set pieces in one game. That's probably first and And just be alert. Like the last goal that went in, what was it the last one or was it the fourth one? Whichever one kind of Denny Buanga had at the sort of top of the box, shot it, and then it went... Under Takaoka, I can't remember if that was the fourth or the fifth goal, but like they just weren't alert to the short free kick and allowed, I think it was the fifth goal because Luis Martins came in at this point. Um, and they just weren't alert. So, so that was number one. Number two is, I have no idea why you are putting Javane Brown, who is sub 50% on aerial duels overall, let alone aerial duels in his own box, in an area of the pitch where LAFC was clearly targeting that area, and I'm talking about the six-yard box, it was loading up the six, having decoy runs towards the six to kind of draw out guys, and then Brown is left having to defend those aerial duels. I think he was one for three in the game. He might have even been 0 for three. So that's a, a second thing. And third, when Matias Laborda is averaging, I think it's 64% aerial duel success rate overall this season... And he's 58% in his own box, which is better than Ranko, which is better than Javane Brown. You have to be starting him. I'm sorry. Especially when you were able to score two goals on the road against LAFC. You were drawn 2-2 at halftime with them. And you threw it away. Um, There's no reason why you're scoring two goals on the road and then end up losing the game. There just isn't. Um, and, And that clearly outdid themselves. So... Look, I don't know if they didn't work on set pieces at all. It seemed to have kind of corrected itself sort of midway through the campaign. It reared its ugly head now. It's also been a bit of an issue the last few games of the season, to be fair. But for the most part, they had seemed to figure it out. And now it just they just capitulated again. That's clearly what they have to change. And it probably starts with some personnel. Also, maybe Ali Ahmed coming in from the start because... Uh, look, Alessandro Schoff can offer you some things defensively. I think he's decent defensively, but he's too slow on the ball. And Ali Ahmed might be able to give you a little bit more pace and drive in the midfield that I think they were lacking at times, Um, especially with those third man runs from LAFC. I think that a lot of guys 
had problems. Kubas aside, had problems tracking it because even Vite kind of lost his man a couple of times, which happened for the Buanga goal, the first goal that is. Um, things like that definitely need to change because other than those set pieces, they actually kind of held LAFC in check and open play and were able to create enough to give them problems. Um, attacking set pieces were still good. Brian White still managed to score. Ryan Gall was quiet, but you can't imagine he's going to be quiet for a second straight game. So they can just solve those things. They might be able to get it done in game two of their best of three series. Again, ridiculous format, but we don't have to go into that. <laughs> what I find hilarious about playoffs is that it's just like, for whatever reason, it's where like everything about a team usually comes true. Like, it's just like, that's why it's hilarious to see St. Louis throttled by Sporting Kansas City, a team that like only got in on the last day or like, and then only like made it in because of they won the wild card game. Yet St. Louis is XG. Like, it's been an issue all season long. Like, they're yeah. like basically they're just they're, they're scoring for fun no matter the XG. You know, it's just funny. Like, all that to say, what were the models saying about the Whitecaps? Very good offensive team, team that can score goals. Brian yeah. White and Ryan Gauld. You know, just set elite pieces tandem. As well. Attacking set pieces. Attacking set pieces, etc. But as we've seen all year long, crosses and set pieces defensively, it's been an issue every all season long. It's been really bad for some portion. Some there's about a few weeks they clean it up in uh when they had that clean sheet streak. Just for context, I looked up now when it comes when you go on American soccer and analysis and you put corners, free kicks, and set pieces. The Whitecaps allowed the most goals in MLS off those situations. That's wild. Fourteen goals, <laughs> uh, more than XG? Austin, uh, and the XG was eighth highest, eight point seven three. So they overperformed. <sighs> Basically, Peter, I don't know. We talked about this funnily enough on the third sub about a month ago. Just for context, you know the Whitecaps. I think they're underperforming their XG by about six goals. The whole discrepancy is made up on their set piece deficiencies. Like I think from open play defensively and offensively they've pretty much like bang on in terms of like performance mm -hmm. but that that discrepancy they have in terms of like their expected goal difference everything comes off set pieces by the way so like this is something where it's genuinely a huge worry and i just find that hilarious that coming into the playoffs those are the two things we know been saying this white caps team offensively can win an mls cup defensively that's where the issues lie they scored two goals on the road against lafc in one half Ryan Gold gets an assist. Brian White scores. Sam Adekugbe chips in with the set-piece goal. Like, everything's hitting, but then you allow four set-piece goals. Like, you allow two in a playoff game. That's too much. To allow four, that's just it, – it's inexcusable, I guess you'd say. The good thing is for the Whitecaps, this format's extremely forgiving. So, it's, you know, for sure it's not over. I think there's – it's very plausible. They can win at home. It's there, you know, looks like 30 plus thousand could even be there for the Whitecaps, which is, you know, incredible for them. And they can give LAFC a heck of a game. But uh, if they're to win the next two, which they have to or at least draw the next two and then win on penalties, they're going to have to clean up both facets of the game. But uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of ironic that both extremes really came to play uh, for, for, for them in this one. And predictions for game two. I say it's going to be a 3-1 LAFC win. Whitecaps score the first goal. Wow. Okay. I... I'm going to say that they figure it out. They settle for a 1-1 draw, and then the Whitecaps win on penalties, um, which might be a bit bold because Maxime Crepeau is, as we found out in that finale in the regular season, decent on penalties. But uh, I think they get it done, but then lose in LA to lose the overall series. Yeah, I think they win 2-1 at home. I think it's been fascinating. Classic AGR, the 2-1. <laughs> 
Yeah, I love I love a two one, but hey, I mean, I predicted two one for Forge Cavalry, so it's it's it's. <laughs> and you never said which side either, which I found intriguing, and yet. Uh, no, but jokes aside, I'd just say two one. Like again, Whitecaps, I think will score two again at home is not unrealistic against this LAFC defense. It's just can they keep LAFC quiet? I don't think all year they've struggled to keep LAFC quiet. I don't think they've kept a clean sheet against them all year. So I think they allow at least one goal. But I think at home, pretty much every team so far except St. Louis has won at home in the playoffs, including wildcard. Like there's an advantage of playing at home. So I think Vancouver wins at home. It's really and I think it comes down to that third leg. But we'll, we'll see. And getting into the Canadian women's national team, a heartbreaking 1-0 loss to Brazil in the 94th minute. Yep. Brazil scored late off a deflected shot. It was off of Buchanan's leg, off of Gilles', Gilles well. hip, uh, and then not much Sheridan could do about no. it. Uh, Jesse Fleming exited in the 18th minute, but Bev Priestman is optimistic that she'll be available in Halifax on Tuesday. And from W Soccer CA, everyone had high hopes for the back three system but it didn't work against Brazil. What player are we missing to make the formation work against a top team like Brazil? You know what? Having watched the game back, I actually didn't think they performed that poorly overall. Um, Like there were a couple of decent sequences from what I can remember. Adriana Leon had a decent chance. I think it was around 41st minute, somewhere around there. And then she also had a really good chance off of a Nichelle Prince assist. um, Just before halftime as well. But it's not going to register on the shot tally or the expected goals tally because the first one Leon actually couldn't get a shot off in the end and the second one her eventual shot hit off of Prince and she was offside so it was negated for that um so I think overall the fluidity was okay despite the fact they lost Jesse Fleming I thought Julia Grosso looked pretty good going box to box in the game uh Sydney Collins kind of playing as an inverted wing back at times to sort of make up the numbers against the Brazilian midfield um Unfortunately, they couldn't find their decisive goal and they lost off of a deflection. It happens. Uh, but I thought overall, I, I technically did like what I see. But if I were to choose one player profile who I think could make it work, you just need an absolute killer in the box. Like you need that prolific number nine, essentially a Sinky replacement, which I know is going to be hard Evelyn to find. Uh, but Evelyn Vian could be the one. You're right. Um, because I, I guarantee you if one or two of those chances fell to her, she converts one. That's just what she does. Um, so maybe she gets a chance in Halifax. We'll see. But um, that to me is probably the one thing that's missing. Because overall, I kind of liked what I saw. Ashley Lawrence may be a bit quiet going forward, maybe quieter than what we're used to. But I'm sure she'll she'll be more dynamic in this game in Halifax on Tuesday. Yeah, I, I don't know. I felt... The one thing that really stood out to me, and it was a bit of a question I had heading in, um, is just Canada continues to struggle with the press. They just can't. Like, they're struggling when teams press them, but Brazil hit them with this, like, 4-2-2-2, and it just was it was stifling for Canada. I think there was, especially when Jesse Fleming went off, um, I just felt like they were turning over the ball so much, and I think it was kind of like, not surprising in a sense that when Brazil scored the winner, it came off a Canada turnover because all game it felt like any Brazil chance they were getting was just win the ball high off Canada, hit them in transition, get a shot. The good news is Canada was defending well enough that most of the shots were from outside the box, but in the end, a shot from outside the box fools them. So I'd say for Canada, I just, I'd, I'd like to see them try and find a way to beat the press. Cause I think that's just going to invite more and more teams to press 
because while what we saw against Jamaica was great, it's worth noting Jamaica does sit a little deeper. They are a bit more defensive. And that was good to see that Canada can control the initiative in a game like that, no doubt. Um, but I want to see what Canada does when teams press them, because I think top teams are going to press them. Australia did it at the World Cup. The U.S. has done it a bunch now. Top teams are going to continue to do that if Canada struggles. Uh, so this uh, this next Brazil game and the next two Australia games are huge, because I think they're going to get pressed a lot. Um, so how do they handle that? I think for what we saw, I just felt they were short of playing in the midfield. So I'd like them to maybe try a 3-5-2, because I think the 3-4-3, three, three, it works. It worked against Jamaica just because there wasn't that press that was there. So you could, you know, get your wingbacks pushed up. Your midfielders could be a bit more aggressive. I just felt like the midfielder, the double pivot had a bit too much to do uh, in this in this game against Brazil in the 3-4-3. And I wonder if a 3-5-2 um, could have made sense to get more out of them. So that's probably what I, I want to see uh, find for them to find a way to be a bit more press resistant just because I, I feel like they're a bit too sloppy in their build-up playing. Part of that was also the players, but I just felt like there weren't enough options. There wasn't enough movement. Uh, the wingbacks were getting pinned too deep in their half, and then the midfielders were getting marked too easily by the Brazil press. And getting into our Canucks Abroad Roundup and Mailbag, the Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and daily schedules for Canadians in action at Canucks-Abroad.ca. Some notable performances from Tejon Buchanan, who registered an assist for Club Bruges against Royal Antwerp. That's two assists and as many games after he had an assist in the Europa Conference League. Stefan Estacchio scored for Porto in their win against Vizela on Sunday and dedicated it to his late mother, Esmeralda. Jane Nelson picked up a goal and an assist for Rosenborg on Sunday. He's now on five goals and four assists in all competitions this season. Victor Latoury scored his first goal for Ross County, but they coughed up a lead late in a 3-3 draw with Motherwell. Theo Bear and Harry Payton also started in that one. Jamie Knight-Labelle made his Bristol City debut as a 73rd-minute substitute against E.K. Ubo's Cardiff City on Saturday. And Peter, what did you see in that match? There was a decent amount to like. What I'll say is that defensively, he did look pretty solid. In fact, his first touch involved him needing to stop a potential 1v1 because his fellow center back under hit a pass to him in open space right in the center of the pitch. And he had to kind of intervene with a late tackle, one possession, and was able to stave off the danger. So kudos to him for that. He actually made a second challenge that was similar to that on the right flank. Um, and then in the air, very solid. Pretty much won every single aerial duel. So defensively, really good game. Still think on the ball, he has a lot to improve on. There were a lot of um, panicked passes whenever he was pressed. And just his overall decision-making just wasn't quite there. Maybe that'll come with time. Because, for example, Luke Defugerol, when you see him in those same situations, he just plays it simple. Back to the goalkeeper. Oh, I'm getting pressed. Can't see a pass. I'm just going to turn around, pass it back to my goalkeeper, create a passing angle to maybe receive it again, and then be in space. Little things like that he maybe has to work on still. But it was his first game. He had 20-odd minutes. Looked pretty good defensively, which... When you're looking at the meat and potatoes of what a defender should be, uh, that's what he provided. And lastly, Luke Defugerol made Fulham's matchday squad in their 1-1 draw against Brighton as well. But that's all we've got on episode 146 of the Northern Football Podcast. For Peter Glendo and Alex Gongeruzic, I've been Ben Steiner. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>